Today's scripture reading, the first one, is from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, that's verses 1 through 15. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that, that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. And so he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing there, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. Luke 15, Luke 5, 15 through 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that clear reading. Now, many of you will recognize the name Harriet Tubman. Now, though she came from difficult circumstances, her life has become an inspiration for many. She was born a slave on a cotton plantation, and she was uneducated and illiterate for most of her life, or all of her life. And when she was five years old, she was hired off by her owner to be a caregiver for a baby, where she was unfortunately whipped every time the baby cried. 
When she was 13 years old, she suffered a tremendous brain injury that caused seizures and headaches for her entire life. Yet her legacy out, far outweighs her pedigree. Many of you are probably recognize her name for helping with the Underground Railroad and helping African Americans escape slavery. But she also went on to live a very productive life, advocating for women's rights to vote and creating a home for the elderly. But perhaps what is less well known is that all of her activism and activity was fueled by a very deep and living relationship with the living God. Despite her illiteracy, she spent hours memorizing scripture and listening to God in prayer. Her biographer, Sarah Bradford, once described Tubman exercising a powerful but very simple faith in God. And when people expressed surprise at how her faith was just, how she just trusted God and how she was so courageous and daring, she would, she would simply reply like this, don't I tell you, missus, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. She simply prayed to God and say, I trust you, I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. But here's a hypothetical situation. Imagine Tubman had the technology that we have today. And at night, she gets wakened by one of her seizures or her headaches, and she can't fall back asleep. So what does she do? She rolls over, she pulls out her phone, fires up Instagram, checks the latest notification of the photo she posted of a recent escapee that she successfully helped escape, and people commenting on that. And then she checks her DMs to see other you know, potential escapees, and she's trying to organize them. And then she still can't fall asleep after that, so she fires up Pokemon Go and plays with her checks on her Charizard for a little bit. And then after that, she still can't sleep, so she fires up the, late, you know, the latest uh, episodes of The Last of Us because, like, in real life, she's kind of doing, you know, hiding and killing zombies, right? That's kind of like what she's doing, uh, trying to keep people safe as she's moving them along. And she still can't fall asleep after doing that, so she fires up a podcast, and that lulls her back to sleep. Can you imagine that? No one does that, right? Would she have missed an opportunity to hear God in the quietness of the wee hours of the night? Would she have been able to draw from God's strength? Or would she have been sucked into the eternal pit black hole of where the smartphone leads? How might her life have been impacted? You know, the point of the story is not that the more you suffer, the more uh, closer you are to God, or that the smartphone itself is inherently evil. But we are the first generation in history to have to follow Jesus with constant notifications and the world, the entire world, at our fingertips through these devices like, like this. So here's a question. What if the greatest threat to us practicing our spirituality, following Jesus, living in God's love, isn't political ideologies, isn't postmodernism? What if it isn't finding agreement on social justice or ethics or even tradition, uh, denominations or theological convictions? What if those are not the greatest threat to our spirituality, but simply the greatest threat is distraction? Distraction and over-bombarded. We are overly bombarded by notifications and these demands on our time, our careers, and our families through entertainment, through our activity options, through everything that we're told 
we need to respond to. Some of us cannot let those notifications be untouched. And we simply have no space to be alone. Cultural critic Cal Newport wrote in his book, Digital Minimalism, saying this, it's now possible to completely banish solitude from your life. It's now completely possible to banish solitude from your life. See, the moment that most of us are ever alone in a room or in a car, what do we do? We reach for our devices. We check our texts. We read up on the news. We Google what question we have on our brain. And how many of you, you don't have to nod or even reveal that you did this when you walked into church today and sat down in a pew and no one was talking to you? How many of you pulled out the phone and just said, I'm going to just check my text messages? And maybe you did that online as you were waiting for the service to start. It's like, oh, service hasn't started, so let me just pull up my iPad and see what's going on on Facebook. Our devices, even the noise-canceling ones that we put on our ears, they keep us tethered to a world of noise. All this technology has made us feel like we're not alone, but we're just as lonely as ever. We might have tens of thousands of followers, but we're disconnected as ever. In Luke 5, verse 16, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place. Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place. And if you read the preceding chapters, and you got a great overview of that this morning in our teaching time that Matt, Matt, Matt led from chapters 1 to 4, we'll remember that it was just after Jesus' baptism, and he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And immediately upon returning, he's actively in ministry. He's preaching and teaching. He's delivering uh, people. He's healing the sick. Jesus had this busy and active life, but he frequently withdrew to a lonely place. And this phrase in the NIV was, is translated, the lonely place comes from the Greek word eremos, which you'll find throughout the New Testament translated in other ways. Eremos is translated as the desert, the deserted place, the solitary place, the desolate place, or simply the quiet place. And all of these suggest how Jesus' busy life was fueled by this practice of solitude, of stillness, and of silence. We find that Jesus isn't the only one who did this. In the Old Testament reading in 1 Kings 19, we find that Elijah does it as well. Elijah goes into the wilderness, we're told in verse 4. He goes to Mount Horeb to spend 40 days and 40 nights alone. And there on Mount Horeb, he goes even more solitude into a cave in that mountain. Where he, and there, that's where he meets God. Similar to Jesus, Elijah has spent time busy with full of life and ministry. He's overwhelmed, in fact. He's depressed, I think. This would be a, a classical description of depression. He wants to give up. He wants to walk away. But he's just done amazing feats. He's, he's done basically like, Israel Palestine's next top prophet on this fire invoking competition on the top of Mount Carmel. And he wins, but he flees because King Ahab wants to seek his life. But I wonder what if Elijah had a smartphone while he was sitting and he missed this encounter with God? What if he missed? This because of the tyranny of the devices that we have to our devices, to all of our distractions that we feel like we cannot miss. Lord, have mercy on us. 
So in, this, in Jesus and in Elijah and in others in the scripture, we see this movement, retreating and returning, retreating and returning. Both Jesus and Elijah shows us our need for solitude, but also our need for community. Jesus would retreat to solitude, and then he would get away from people and noise and from stimulation and to pray and to rest and to hear the, fa the Father's voice. But then he would return back into being with people in community to love them and to serve them. And he goes back and forth to describe these two pillars of buckets of practices, solitude and community, that we can put the other practices into these buckets. Here's the problem, though. Many of us in this digital age, we never really go all the way into community, and we don't really go all the way into solitude. We're often alone together. We can all sit in this same room, be on our devices, and we say, oh, I went to church today, but we never actually engaged in a meaningful conversation with someone else. We never go deeper beneath the surface where we are truly known by others and where we can truly know others. And that's a big reason of why we started this new Sunday schedule. It's not just because we like to confuse everybody, but it's so that we can spend more meaningful time together to be shaped by Jesus in community. But we're also, in this series, reminding ourselves of the need for solitude. And that's why we're doing this uh, practice for the next four weeks. French mathematician, philosopher, and theologian Blaise Pascal once said this about solitude. All the unhappiness of people arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own room. Why is solitude so hard for us? I think it's because we're so afraid of the mess that we see and that we know is in our room. And so he, Pascal describes what we do as, as diversion, saying, hence it comes people so much love noise and stir. Hence it comes that the prison of being in your own room by yourself is so horrible a punishment. Hence it comes that the pleasure of solitude is a thing incomprehensible. In other words, we fear solitude because we fear what we will have to face when we are there. And so we keep ourselves distracted and busy with our devices, with our activities, with all of our demands. So hopefully I've given you this groundwork saying, we are desperately in need of solitude in our lives because we're constantly tethered to everything. But what does solitude actually look like? So let me describe what solitude is not. First of all, it's not loneliness. Spiritual writer first, uh, Richard Foster says, loneliness is inner emptiness. Where you look in within and just feel utterly empty. But solitude is inner fulfillment. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Secondly, Solitude is not isolation. Hawaiian pastor uh, Wayne Cordero says this, Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. When you neglect solitude, isolation is what you experience. Isolation, in other words, is movement away from relationship, but solitude is movement toward the most important relationship. And finally, solitude, it's not loneliness, it's not isolation, it's also not aloneness. You know, social scientists have studied the difference between on the effect of solitude on the human psyche, and, and they distinguish between solitude and aloneness. 
Aloneness is what many of us, me included, introverts, we love aloneness. You want to be away from people so you can do your own thing. But often being alone, you can still be tethered to lots of thoughts and opinions and inputs and, and books and stimulation and whatever it is that we want to do when we're alone. Cal Newport, that I mentioned earlier in his book, Digital Minimalism, Minimalism describes how solitude, true solitude, means that we are free from inputs. We are free from the inputs flying at us. Social scientist research actually indicates that introverts do not actually prefer true solitude more than extroverts. Because introverts fill their alone time with just as much distraction as extroverts do when they're with people. And so this means that introvert, I mean, solitude is not just a practice for the introverted people amongst us. It's not biased towards some personality types over others. So what is solitude? Solitude is simply being alone with God. Being alone with God. Solitude is not me time for introverts. That's often narcissistic or selfish, which is the opposite of the goal of the practice of solitude, which is so that we can love more and sacrifice more and serve others more, just like Jesus. Solitude is where we remove all the other inputs coming in at us for a certain time, and then we make room for two inputs. The input of God and the input of our hearts laid completely open before God. Removing all the other inputs, so the only input is God and our heart laid open before God. Solitude is this intentional time where we can be ourselves and be with God. And solitude often works in this triad of solitude, silence, and stillness. And a lot of people often want to allegorize solitude. I have a state of solitude. It's like the zen. It's like I don't let things bother me. And, and, uh, but, it's, it's, but it's not more than just an attitude. It is a physical practice that we must do together. Because we can say that we have this inner kind of stillness, but still be participating in so many things and having all these inputs flying at us that we don't actually hear God and we don't actually lay our hearts open before God. So we can practice solitude and silence in two ways. Oh, and so, so we practice solitude through this external discipline of silence. And so with silence, there's two kinds of silence. One is this exterior silence where we really are literally silent. We don't have music playing in the background. We don't have TVs playing in the background. We don't have YouTube running in the background. We don't have to go work in a, we don't have people in a crowded coffee shop with the buzz around you because you need stimulation. No chimes and buzzes from your, your phones. Those are completely turned off. It's quiet, like physically quiet. And some of us can take a step into solitude simply this week by not listening to any music for a time. It's okay. Not listening, having the TV on all the time. But there's a second part of silence, which is interior silence, where we attempt, and this is harder than we often say it is, where we just don't allow the thoughts and the emotions and the worries and on the rumblings of your heart to be loud for a moment. To let those go. 
interior silence is meant to lead to this place of stillness. Stillness is where solitude is experienced internally, in the realm of our thoughts and our emotions, where they're not racing and we're not carried away by our emotions. And one goal of the solitude practice is to get to this third aspect of solitude, which is stillness and serenity. The Eastern Orthodox Bishop Callistos Ware says this way, stillness is a state of inner tranquility or mental quietude and concentration. Stillness is not simply silence, but it's an attitude of listening to God and an openness to God. Solitude is where we are still enough to notice and to hear God. The ancients called this state, the Greek word apatheia, where we're not just quiet and silent in our mind and our hearts, but it's active silence of surrender, of waiting and listening. You know, on a recent trip back to Canada, my high school buddies and I went uh, two days fishing for rainbow trout on this lake. And most of the day, you know, the lake is, you know, wind is whipping it up. And, and, but there were a few moments, like this photo I took in early one morning, where the, the, the lake was completely still like glass. At another moment uh, in the day, when, after, you know, when the wind settled down, you could see insects touching down on the surface of the glass. You could see larvae floating up from the lake bed up to the surface where fish would be jumping out of the water to eat them. That stillness is kind of what like apatheia is like. When all the wind and the busyness of your life and of your tasks and of demands and of your distractions, they die down so you can actually notice God's voice bubbling up. And God's voice has always been bubbling up. It's just that we're too distracted to notice, both on the outside and on the inside. Spiritual writer Henry Nouwen says this, Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It's not just about making us feel good and feel calm. Rather, it is a place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born, the place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. See, solitude is not a self-indulgent practice just for introverts. Instead, it's a practice to help us be transformed further into Christ's likeness. And Jesus' invitation is simply this. It's an invitation. He says, come, follow me. And another way to translate that invitation is to say, come and follow my way of life. Come and follow my way of doing life. Yes, at solitude, you might think, well, solitude, I'm not sure if it's for me. It might be for some of those more serious, spiritual, introverted types. Jesus shows us that it's for all people, for all places, and for all time. How you practice solitude, it might look different based on your season of life, whether you're a parent or whether you're retired or whether you're in college. It might customize for your personality. But if Jesus needed solitude even for himself, how much more do we? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't command you to do solitude. But Jesus also doesn't command you to go read your Bible. Jesus doesn't command you to pray. Actually, few of the spiritual disciplines, you know, the practices that we've been talking through over the past year, Jesus actually never commands anyone to do those things. He simply invites you. 
come, follow me, follow my example. Jesus doesn't command people to go to church. He just says, follow me. It's just an invitation. Ruth Haley Barton, if you want a great companion for the series, uh, this book is great, Invitation to Solitude and Silence by Ruth Haley Barton. She says this, this invitation to solitude and silence is just that. It is an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of relationship with the one who waits just outside the noise and busyness of our lives. It is an invitation to communication and, to, and communion with the one who is always present, even when our awareness has been dulled by distraction. It is an invitation to the adventure of spiritual transformation in the deepest places of our being, an adventure that will result in greater freedom and authenticity and surrender to God than we have yet experienced. Just to clarify, when we talk about this eremos, this, solitude, this solitary place, this lonely place, it isn't just a physical place. It's a practice that we need to do and engage in. And often get, you can get away for a retreat, and for those who have the opportunity to do that, you could go travel to the desert of New Mexico or travel to the Holy Land. But you don't have to do that to experience an encounter with God in solitude. We can practice solitude in our daily lives, carving out time, maybe walking down to the park, maybe just setting up a candle in a place in your home that's not your bed, that's not your workstation, where you can just sit and reflect and concentrate on hearing from God and opening your heart before God. Maybe that can happen when, before your family or your roommates awake. And when maybe when you, like me, like me uh, wake up in the middle of the night, we're just tempted to roll over and pull off our phone. There's a time where, and fire up something to keep ourselves distracted. But maybe it's about pausing and saying, God, I'm here. What do you have for me? What's going on in my side of my heart? What thoughts are racing that I need to release to you? And that takes practice. And that's why we need to encourage each other. You know, in silence, we create space for God's activity rather than filling every minute of our lives with our own activities, our own need to control things, our own need to understand everything that we're thinking about. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how this practice of solitude allows us to encounter ourselves. Bethany Blankespool is going to lead us next week on that. The following week, we're going to look at how solitude helps us encounter the enemy and how it, solitude helps us encounter God. But for this week, this is my invitation to you after you've heard this initial message. Where can you... Maybe take a step into solitude. Maybe it's just 60 seconds of the day. Maybe it's five minutes. I don't know what God Jesus is inviting you to. Ten minutes, periods during the day. Maybe you just have to set a notification on your calendar. Where you just pause. Eliminate all the inputs for a moment. And say, God, I'm here. Here's my heart. And as you do so, maybe you're thinking, oh, I've got too many things going on in my mind. So write them down, jot them down, and, and just pause and say a simple phrase. Jesus, something like this. You can pick one that works for you. I, I just like Jesus, 
on the earth. What do you got for me? Let me find this quiet place and see how Jesus invites you deeper into a relationship with the God of love. As we conclude, allow this poem by Wendell Berry be our prayer today. Pray with me. Or maybe you can look at the candle if that's helpful for you. The mind that comes to rest is tended in ways that it cannot intend, is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. Lord, may this be so in our lives as we enter into places of solitude with you.